0: So I'm sure that when you were growing up, for some of you, again, that's recent. For others of you, it's still going on, and for some of you, it's still going on, even though you think you're grown up. I want you to go back and just remember a time when you noticed something in your parents that it seemed they were telling you to do something that they didn't have to do, or it seemed to disconnect for you. We say that the idea is do what I say, not what I do. Do you remember times like that? And I'm sure when you grew up, you never did that to your kids. I know for me, one of the first times I encountered this was when I realized my kids had to wear helmets when they rode bikes because you know it's unsafe not to. But I did not like to wear a helmet. So I told them, you wear a helmet. And they would look at me and go, why aren't you? And I would say, because I'm your dad, shut up and wear your helmet. You know how that goes, right? Or they get to the age when they're driving and you say, don't speed. And they say, dad, you're speeding. And you say, well, it's because I'm the dad. And then they point out again, how is it different than me? And then you say, well, because I can pay for insurance. Can you pay for insurance? And again, you win, but it's do what I say, not what I do. Now, I bring that up because we've spent the last four weeks being challenged, really being encouraged to live by our love that indeed Jesus himself On the very night, the week we're going into, by the way, if you don't know, it's called Holy Week because it's the week that Jesus enters Jerusalem and ultimately will lead to his death, and even at the end of the week, lead to his resurrection. It's a powerful week. But on the night before that happens, he literally says to his closest followers, You want to know how people will know you? It's by our love. And the way we looked at it over the last four weeks, if you haven't been with us, I just want to recap briefly. I want to let you know that what happened was there's a a man named Paul who has an incredibly divine moment, discovers who Jesus is. Before that, he's actually trying to take out all the people who follow Jesus and begins to be a champion for who Jesus is. Takes it through all these cities in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and ultimately to other parts of Rome, of Italy, of Greece, all sorts of places. But one of the places he does this, they start fighting and not living like Jesus. So he writes a letter to them to remind them to center themselves on who Jesus is. Because by the way, Jesus doesn't say, do what I say and not what I do. Paul would say he actually lives it out the best in the way we should. Well, in the middle of this letter, he tells them this in all their arguing and fighting. He says, I'm gonna show you the most excellent way and I'm gonna show you a better way than the way you're living. You're constantly battling, you're constantly in power struggles. Who's right? Who's wrong? I can do this, you can do that. It's a constant battle and kind of a division going on. And then he tells them these words really as an indictment, as a way of vision of what it could be, although you will be familiar with this passage if you haven't been with us. If you've been to a church wedding at any time, this is probably read, it often is. Oddly though, it's read as this wonderful poem for couples, but it's really a challenge, an indictment, and a vision for what the church should be to each other. Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind. We look through what deeper meaning there is to that. All the do nots, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it isn't self-seeking, it doesn't get mad easily, it doesn't keep a tally of wrongs. And the next week we looked at how love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. And finally, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and perseveres. Love never fails. <laughs> Now, where we walk into and why we continued this series, not because we're staying in this letter, but because we understand that as we move into Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, we get to ask the question, does Jesus live out what he calls us to live in? Is this really who Jesus is, or is he do what I say and not what I do? And so we're going to take it up, in Mark's account. Now there are four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We call them gospels, which literally just means good news. You'll see one of the reasons we call them that in a minute. But Mark gives this one account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we're taking it up in this final week. The very week we celebrate and call Palm Sunday is the week Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so we're going to take it up in that part of the account in Mark chapter 11. Mark writes, as he recalls, they approached Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his followers and a whole other group gathering and they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, before we move on, just so you know, so it's clear, it isn't a random time that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. For every Jew, there are three times a year from the Hebrew scriptures that they're to go to Jerusalem to celebrate what are called feasts. This particular one is Passover. It's a a week-long time. They're starting it on this first of the week before, and it is a powerful time that they remember how they were in bondage to Egypt and God freed them. It is the story of Israel, of God moving from slavery to freedom and new life, and that's what they're celebrating. So Jesus is going here. It then says he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now there's more to this story, we're gonna come into it in a little bit, but I wanna take you kind of outside the scripture for a minute to understand the context with which this happens. At this time, Rome is over most of the ancient world. Caesar Augustus is the reigning monarch, he is king. And interestingly, we have a lot of record of things said about Caesar Augustus and even about how he was seen by the community in the world around him. I want to take this and take this and have you see it because it's going to help us understand what's going on on this week. So this is one of the many documents that tells about Caesar Augustus. Prian is actually, this is found in a city in what is now Turkey um, in a very near place to Ephesus actually, not that you all care, but this is one of many. So this is what it says on this one particular coin. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. Now in the Greek, gospel is euangelion. It simply means good news, but it's a profound statement that ultimately Caesar himself is not only king, he is the good news. Now I wanna show you the beginning of Mark's account because my case I wanna make to you very simply is this. Mark is going to contrast Jesus with Caesar all through his account. He's gonna point things out To help us see, and make no mistake, Jesus is not only Messiah, he is king, and he's meant to change everything and mess with how everybody views the Roman world. So this is what you read in many accounts of who Augustus is. This is how Mark starts his gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is contrasting Jesus with Caesar Augustus. He is saying, Jesus is the good news, not Augustus. Now, in case you don't know, Rome was not a place you got to say whatever you thought. Caesar reigned, Caesar was king, and Caesar was the good news. So I wanna be clear, you understand Mark's writing this alone is incredibly scandalous and very inflammatory. I just don't want you to miss that. I want to take it further. I'm going to tell you some more things about Augustus. We'll get back to the story, but I don't want you to miss this. So this, these are all the things I'm going to show you are from different ancient documents. I didn't note them here. If that matters to you, you can check with me later, but they are from them. These are different statements about him, and I want you'll, you'll see, for those of you who've been around church, some parallels. If you haven't, we'll get to them as we go through the morning. So this, we already got to this one, the gospel comes through him, he is the good news. So that the Roman world, they believe that when Caesar Augustus is born, he brings the gospel, the good news, and it's about him, for him, and through him. That's how the world sees it. Another thing they see in the ancient world is that he is a divine son of God, which by the way, every ruling monarch was to consider to be divine in some way. And he was divine to set up the golden age. In other words, the way they measured what went well was through their economic success, through their military success, through the lands they had and what they reigned over. In other words, he is divine, and the way he is divine is by power. Everything is about power with Augustus. Let me take you to another one. He also is said, he, they call it the Pax Romana. He brings the peace of Rome, and the way he brings peace is to impose it on the world. Are you getting a theme here, I hope? Caesar Augustus will bring a new day. He will bring it through the good news of who he is. He will bring it through his divine, or, basically his divine orientation, his power as he brings peace by domination. Another one he brings is he actually, it was said, would be a savior. This is to the people of Rome, to us and our descendants. And how does he do it? By bringing order. Again, Caesar will save us through his power and might, through his dominion. And make no mistake, it's not for them. They just are beneficiaries of what's about Caesar and Caesar alone. This final one, this literally said he would wipe away their sins And that didn't mean the way we understand it traditionally in the church, but he would bring back fame to Rome. In other words, he would wipe out everything that had gone poorly for them, wipe out whatever caused it, and he would bring back glory, fame, success, and notoriety. All of these things, in case you don't know yet, Mark is going to talk about of who Jesus is. Jesus will be the good news. Jesus is the defined son of God. Jesus will bring peace to everyone. Jesus will be a savior and Jesus will wipe away sins. However, Caesar will achieve it through power. Now what we're going to look at is how Jesus achieves it. And I'll tell you right now why I want you to look over and over and over again. Because you will find Israel will really struggle, and they did all the way through Jesus walking the earth, even through his coming into Jerusalem. It's one of the high points. When they want him to move in power, they want him to demand a new way and overthrow who Caesar is. They want to show that he's greater by him establishing a golden age, by him imposing his peace on the world, by him demanding and being a savior by bringing order and what they want and by bringing back fame to Israel. That's what they want. Now that matters because now he's entering Jerusalem. Now when he does this, remember there's a colt, and now we're asked about it. If anyone asks you, Jesus is talking about this, why are you doing this? He's just told these two people to go find a colt for him. If they do, just say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. Then they, then they went, they found a colt outside in the street and they tied it to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? I always love that. You know, you know, words don't always say it in the language. I mean, you gotta understand, it looked like they're stealing a colt. What, hey, what are you doing? Hey, excuse me? All he says is that what Jesus told him to. Hey, my Lord has need of it, and that was enough. Now, that's a powerful statement in and of itself. I, I don't want you to miss this because it's kind of interesting and profound in that there's something beautiful about what's happening right here, what we're learning from Mark's understanding. By the way, no one would ask for a colt to take it, and no one would bring it back. There's only one person that's allowed to ask to use something, and guess who it is? The king. So this is a statement already of Jesus' kingliness by the ask of it. But Israel had a much bigger picture because there's a prophecy about this. In Zechariah, this happened centuries before, when Messiah comes, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is a part I don't want you to miss. Very clearly from the messianic uh, prophecies, Messiah is a king this is really important to Mark. Mark wants us to understand, by the way, Jesus is king. I know you're looking at the world around you and you see Caesar Augustus and you see kingship. Jesus is a new kind of king with a new kingdom. I don't want you to miss it. And imagine if you are those disciples, how excited you are. He asked for a colt. He asked for a donkey. He's doing what Zechariah said he'd do. They're giving it to him. Oh my goodness. He is the king. Do you know how pumped they are about this? Now there's a battle going on because what they're thinking is what anyone would think. When someone overtakes you with power, what do you want? You want more power, don't you? Who who of us doesn't want to be just a little bit bigger and have just a little more power? No, it's just me. You guys are so selfless. Lie. Let's be honest. I still remember when my kids were little and they would look at someone else's dad and go, my dad's bigger than you because it was important for their dad to be bigger than them. Now, unfortunately, that did not work out so well for my children. But we have this desire to always take more, don't you? Israel longs for Messiah to come and come as a king in power. They are battling over this. Now, the crazy part about this prophecy, victorious, oh, that's winning. The hard part is lowly and riding on a donkey. You realize a king comes in on a horse, don't you? A donkey is a statement of humility and lowliness. Are you starting to get the picture? It's not about power. It's about sacrificial love. Now, Mark wants us to really understand how hard of a battle this is for the disciples. I'm gonna take you back as we go through this. There are three times Jesus tells his closest friends that he's gonna die. Three times before this scene leading up to it. I mean, if you heard something three times, do you think you'd figure out it's true? I would, I would hope I would. And you might even hear the story and go, I would never do that. And I just want to tell you, you are wrong. <laughs> Let's be honest. Everything for this group of people is waiting for a king to make them free. And everything in the world says power means more. Power will get you what you want. Power is how it changes. And they struggle. So let me take you back first to Mark chapter eight. You just can just make a note of it. If you, you don't have to go there right now, but in Mark chapter eight, we have this really unique moment when Jesus is with the disciples. He's asking them who people say he is and they talk about prophets and all these wonderful things. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter profoundly says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the first time, by the way, they have recognized that. And Jesus says, man, you are blessed. God himself, the father showed you this. It's not that you figured it out. Now, right after this, Jesus then tells Peter and all the rest of them They figure out he's Messiah. He says, hey, I just want you to know, I am going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But I want you to know, too, I'm going to rise again. So revelation of Jesus. Peter's excited. Jesus says, hey, I just want you to know it's not going to go the way you want. And Peter, in his infinite wisdom response, (laughs) not really infinite wisdom, in case you didn't understand. I was being sarcastic. He spoke plainly about this, meaning Jesus, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is not something you want to say, have said about you, is it, when it comes to Jesus? Hey, you know, I heard about you. You're the guy who, when the Son of God came, you thought you'd pull him aside and tell me he was wrong. That's a bad idea. But Peter's honest, and Peter's struggling because everything they've been waiting for is coming. The King is coming, the Messiah is coming. And he's like, you can't do it the way you think you're going to do it. There's no way. It's got to come with power. Now, Jesus rebukes him. He actually calls him Satan. Not a very high moment for Peter. But after that, Jesus says these words. Hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross daily. In fact, if you want to save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. He's giving a picture, not of power, but of sacrificial love. And he's moving ahead because he's going to take a journey, not to say you do as I say, not as I do, but let me lead the way and even do it to such a degree that none of you ever could imagine. That's the first interaction. I've got to think the disciples are going back. Let's get back to Jerusalem as they're coming in. It continues. Now they bring the colt to Jesus and they throw their cloaks over it and he sat on it and many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the field. Now these pictures are significant to us. In case you don't know, in the ancient world and particularly in Rome, the only person you laid cloaks on the ground for was the king. This is not like he's a famous person, let's roll out the red carpet. This is these Israelites saying, you must be king. And by the way, the palm branches are very similarly this way. They are something Israel waved. They represented their very nation. It would be the equivalent of us waving flags. You can see the weird mess of this again. They're cheering on that the king is coming, but they want him to come in power. They want him to overtake and force his will on the people to forge a new way for them in every way they hope for. Now this is not the first time it's happened, by the way. Most of us will know the wonderful festival for our Jewish brothers and sisters called Hanukkah. Hanukkah had its inception 150 years or so before Jesus came. The temple in Jerusalem had been desecrated. It had been offering sacrifices from people that weren't, people that followed the way of God, and they were desecrating it. And these Maccabees, as they're known at the time, hated it. And guess how they overcame it? They did it with power. They rebelled. They took the people out that were doing it. They took over the temple. And something miraculous happens in that they don't have enough oil for the eight days they'd use. They light one, and it holds for eight days miraculously while the next set is being made. That's, by the way, where Hanukkah comes from. But what they looked for was their Messiah, their king, to forcefully win by power. And here they are again, spreading the cloaks and spreading the branches, saying, take charge, win for us. Now, let me take you back before we go on to, Matt, to Mark chapter 9. This is the second time that Jesus will tell them all the way leading up to this. He's had one time. They haven't got it a second time after they've seen these additional miracles. By the way, these are in between these. He's showing all sorts of power and crazy fun stuff. If you want to, too, you can see some of the stories around it, though, because it will give you pictures of sacrificial love and loneliness. So now in Mark 9, he says again, hey, I just want you to know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. These people are going to take me out. They are going to basically just make me suffer and I will die Don't worry about it. I'm going to rise again in three days. Now, you would think the second time you'd be kind of shaken by this, right? It's not what happens. They just start talking among themselves. They don't even respond. And now, in Mark 9, Jesus, it says they got to Capernaum. He just told them this. When he's in the house, he knows they're blabbing to each other. He's like, what were you guys talking about on the road? The reason he asks this, though, (laughs) is very simply because he knows what they're talking about is that they want to be important when Jesus becomes king. So they totally miss the sacrifice and the lowliness. And what they're saying after he tells them he's going to die and rise is, well, now who's going to be important? Can I be important? You should be, let's be important. And so Jesus, in response to this, says, listen, I want you to know that those who want to be first will be last. And in the way I will lead, if you really want to be with me, you will have to become a servant of all. It's not about power it's about sacrificial, serving others kind of love. That's how I'm king. That's how I bring my kingdom. doesn't operate the way you think it will or the way you want it to. Let's move back into this scene. They've got the cloaks out. They've placed the branches out. They're cheering him on, and now they're actually singing and yelling. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now in case you don't know, these are called Psalms of Ascent. They very uniquely are sung at Passover, a reminder of how God saved them from the horrible slavery of Egypt. But it's also a statement. They know one day Messiah will come and he will free them. And they are looking for him to do it In power. They bring the cult. They chant Hosanna. They put out their cloaks. They're saying, Jesus, come and overtake these horrible Romans. Make us win and bring a new way of life. Let me take you to the third time, just before this in Mark chapter 10, pretty soon before he's actually on this trip. Maybe even a few days before. Jesus tells his closest friends again, third time Hey, I am going to go to Jerusalem. We're heading there. They know they're even going there now. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be taken over by the Romans and I will be killed. I will be crucified. But three days later, I will rise. You'd think they'd learn, but they don't. This is their response. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him Hey, teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) I'm both moved by their honesty and just embarrassed for them. I mean, do you ever see that? Like, oh my goodness, they're asking for themselves. What is wrong with them? I would be much more subtle. (laughs) I'd send someone else to do it for me. I mean, it's, it's sad. They have not received it. They still don't get it. Before I, I tell you what Jesus says, let me give you one other picture, and this is after this. Jesus is now taken to Pilate. This is after all this happens. He's going to be crucified, and Pilate basically says, you know, why don't you do something about this? <laughs> if you're a king, and Jesus says, I could call down a legion of angels, That's where my, but my kingdom's not like this one. It's a different kind, and I move differently. It's the peace that nobody ever got. And the very same is true in that moment with those disciples when they say, hey, we'd like to ask you for something. By the way, what they ask for is to be on his right and his left. We'd like to be closest to you when you come into your kingdom. Could we have a chair at the table? Could we have a chair right next to it? Could we have junior thrones by any chance? And Jesus goes, you can't have that. Have you gone through what I've gone through and been baptized? They're like, we we have. You're right, you have. But to sit at my right or my left? Man, that's not mine to give. The Father will decide that. You're asking for something you don't understand. And guess what he says again? You gotta, in my kingdom, serve. You don't come to be in charge and to demand and have power. You serve by giving away power sacrificially and out of love. And this is how Jesus finishes this interaction in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is making a really clear statement here. You keep fighting for a kingdom through power. You keep thinking the good news is through a king that's gonna come and force his way of peace into the world and demand his way of fame back to give them their glory and to forgive them, not of sins, but of all the problems they have to make life better for them. That's not how I am. You know, I love... This part of the story, I think it's because one of the questions I often hear from people are, does God die for us because he can't look at us, and through his forgiveness, then he can love us? And it's a really horrible theological understanding of who Jesus is, (laughs) because what we hear over and over again, by the way, from Jesus and then from Paul is he dies for us because he loves us. He says, nobody has a greater love than to lay down your life for someone else. And then Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, boy, a lot of people die for a godly person, but no one would do this because God loves you in your brokenness. God loves me in my brokenness. He loves you in your deepest sin. He loves me in my deepest sin. And the way he brings about good news is through sacrificial love. Wow. That is a different kind of kingdom. And where we get messed up is we kind of like the story that Jesus did it this way, but then we'd like to go back to the way of Caesar for how we live now. Yeah, I love that Jesus did that for me, but could we have power again and tell people what to do and win and be a little bit bigger and a little better? Jesus goes, that's not the way of my kingdom. It's not the way I am and it's not the way you will be as my followers. You see, sacrificial love is the most powerful force in creation. Oh, it is the antidote to sin, and it is the means with which the world is reconciled and we can come into relationship, but it is also more powerful than anything else. Wow. That's what we enter into this week. We enter into this beautiful idea that Jesus frees us through his sacrificial love and calls us to live love in a different way. My invitation as we enter into what we call Holy Week is to ask you to stay with us and engage in the whole week. When we get to Good Friday, we'll look at Jesus' very death, and we want to enter into that together. If you're in town, we'll be here at seven that night for that time. If you're not, we'll be streaming online. We want you to engage in the reality of what it means that he died. And boy, we come to Sunday and Easter, we so... I want you to be there. If you think his sacrificial death is loving, wait till we explore what it means that he rose and how that means what he gives us now to live in. It's going to be a good week. And I think my hope is you'd enter into it, not as a tradition, not as an obligation, not as something you've done before, but just asking Jesus, would you show me your kingship and your way of life differently? I mean, we should be asking that God would purge from us the need to win and to show somebody more power. And make no mistake, we have it in lots of settings, true? Some of you, it's just at home. You need to win an argument. You need to win in power. For some of us, it's in work. I need to win with those people I'm working with. I need to win with my friends at school. I need to win. Name your environment. And Jesus is inviting us to a different way. Sacrificial love is the most powerful force in creation. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we not only remember what you did, but we can live into it in a new way right now. So I'm asking that we would enter kind of our own spiritual Jerusalem with you in this week. Lord, that we would not be like the disciples continuing to demand and want power but we want to be close to you and following you, that we would take up our cross and follow you, that we would become servants of others, that we would want to be the least instead of the greatest, that, God, we would look to lay down our lives for others, and we would live in a way that both honors you and follows you. And then, Lord, would you overwhelm us with how much you love us, that we would see more deeply who you are and how you love us. I ask for this gift in your name. Amen.